Right, as you're seated, turn to Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11, your Bibles. We pick up in the Gospel of Mark by going back to chapter 11. Those of you who have been with us in Mark, we've been there for a little over a year now, um, walking through all 16 chapters, and uh, in early February, we we were in chapter 11, we looked at the triumphal entry of Christ, the traditional beginning of the Holy Week of Christ and His passion, His suffering for us. And then we, we paused chapter 11, we, then we all went all the way to chapter 14, so that we could spend the weeks leading up to Easter, really in the last hours of the life of Christ, culminating last Sunday and Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. And so now we go back to 11 where we left off, because we, we've been in Mark for over a year, we might as well finish it, right? And um, we'll spend the rest of April, May, and June looking at um, the rest of Mark 11, 12, and 13. So we left off with verse 12, after the triumphal entry of Christ into the holy city. Verse 12, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that we get to... Sit under the authority of your word this morning. And so we ask that you would come and instruct and teach and illuminate and do the work that only the Spirit of God can do in conjunction with the word of God. Way more than a man talking, way more than a sermon, we ask you to come, Holy Spirit, and change hearts and change lives. Call us to repent and believe Again, in the gospel of Christ, or maybe, God, by your grace and mercy for some today, for the first time, truly the first time, they will call out to you for salvation. We ask that you would do this work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage has troubled many through the years because it seems so out of character for Jesus. Some have tried to help him out, some followers of Christ, and give some explanations to help him out. You know, like, Jesus, why did you do that? Like, why couldn't you have used all of your power to create figs on the tree? Why did you just curse the fig tree? That would have been a better use of your power. Some who aren't followers of Christ, like famous atheist Bertrand Russell, said that this episode was one of the key things that helped him uh, question the integrity of Christ. Like, how could he be so off the rails? How could he be so petulant as to get mad at a fig tree for not bearing fruit, fruit when it wasn't the season for fruit? And just killing it. 
I mean, that's so out of character, he couldn't trust Jesus, and it was part of him uh, rejecting Christianity. Um, It seems Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree. He walks up to grab something to eat, and even though it's out of the season for the figs, he just zaps it, causing it to die within 24 hours. Like, it's Jesus, a boy, a young boy with with all this power and no control and no maturity to handle it. Like, sometimes I jokingly say, I wish I had rocket launchers on my car. Um, no, not for really real purpose, just because I think it looked cool, right? You're right. But we've seen Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark not in any way acting petulant or immature or out of control. So maybe we should give him the benefit of the doubt. Like maybe when we come across passages like this in Scripture where it seems something strange is happening, maybe instead of automatically questioning the integrity of God, we should say, okay, there's something here I'm not understanding. Because it seems to be a strange thing that Jesus does. Now, if you know fig trees, we had one growing in our, in our backyard once and when we lived in uh, Sterlington. Figs, by the way, I think are disgusting, so one less fig tree in the world. Who cares? But a lot of people like them. Um, fig trees produce their main harvest of figs in late summer, early fall. And after they produce their harvest of figs, they go through the winter. And in the winter, they grow these small buds that as you come into the spring, these buds will swell into what, what's called green knops, or, or the Hebrew actually had a, a word for it, the, the pagum. Now, these knops would grow in the branches, and eventually later in the spring, leaves would grow on the same branches, the knops would fall off, and then the fruit would come. So if you're, you're walking uh, as Jesus, you're hungry, it's the springtime of the year. We know it's the springtime of the year because he's celebrating Passover. He sees a fig tree. There are leaves on the fig tree. He fully expects to walk up and find these little green knops. And he's hungry, so he picks them and he's going to eat them. They weren't very edible. They weren't very good, but they would satisfy your hunger as he's walking to Jerusalem. And Jesus walks up, sees leaves, but no knops. And so that helps us explain the irrationality of this episode. Like Jesus is not just you know, losing his mind. He's mad at a fig tree for not producing figs in the season of figs. It wasn't the season of figs. It was the season of knops. And they weren't there. But still, why did he curse it? You know, why did he just, oh, well, no knops. Now, this is recorded in several other gospel accounts. So obviously, whatever Jesus is doing here made a lasting impression on the disciples. And it's, it's recorded, for instance, in Matthew, along with the cleansing of the temple. And so what you actually have here in the Gospel of Mark is something that Mark makes uh, well good use of throughout his Gospel. It's, it's his sandwiching, storying technique, where he takes two parts of uh, two different stories, or, or rather two different stories. He splits one story into two parts, and then in the middle he puts in a, a, the second story. And that's kind of the meat of the sandwich. That's kind of the, the intention of, of making the sandwich story. He does this all through the Gospel of Mark. And so the meat of this story is what Jesus does at the temple, sandwiched between this, this fig tree episode. And what you actually have is in the fig tree what, what you might call an enacted parable, or, or we may call it today an object lesson. Jesus is using the fig tree, he's sovereign over creation, to teach something which is, in this case, a greater truth and reality about what's going on at the temple. So let's get into that and see the point he's making the temple was the local location, uh, the location of the presence and worship of God for the Jewish people, going all the way back into the Old Testament. God leads his people out of Egypt by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He brings them to Mount Sinai where he would institute this relationship with them based on his, his laws, his commands, which was the Ten Commandments, but more than the Ten Commandments. This is how they would have a relationship with God in this land that he was giving them. 
This is how they would live and, and how they would live in a way that was distinct from the pagan cultures that they, he was sending them into. This is how they would sin, yes, but they would have a way to remain in relationship with God through sacrifices, through uh, offering the blood of innocent animals in place of their sins, to cover over their sins. And he gave them instructions there in Exodus to build this structure called a tabernacle where he would descend and meet with the leaders of the people like Moses and give instruction and direction and where he would receive their worship and their sacrifices. Eventually, the Israelites made it to the promised land, made it to Canaan. They conquered the inhabitants. They established themselves as a nation. David, the first great king of Israel, a man described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart, he loved the Lord. He got tired of living in his own kingly palace and looking at the temple, the ark, rather the ark of the covenant, the dwelling place of God being in this tent called the tabernacle. So he, he has permission. Would it be okay, Lord, for me to build you a house? I've got this nice palace. You have this tent. And the Lord says, no, David, you have too much blood on your hands. You can't build the temple. You can collect the materials, but you'll have a son who will build it. And so Solomon built the first temple, and it was magnificent, amazing. Stood for 400 years until the Babylonians fully destroyed it in 586 B.C. It would later be somewhat rebuilt by Zerubbabel 70 or 80 years later. After it was destroyed, it's much less splendid, and even the Jews knew it. Like, this is not as great as Solomon's temple, but it'll do because it's where God meets with his people. That was later destroyed by the Greeks. And now, by the time of Jesus, we're in the third version of the temple constructed by Herod. And it was indeed one of the most magnificent buildings of its day in the entire world. It wasn't even finished at this point. Now, its basic shape, I have a a picture, um, looked like that. And there were four main parts to it. The largest part was the the big courtyard that that went all the way around that, that building in the center called the Court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the place that anyone could converge. Just the court of the Gentiles alone was 35 acres in size. Think roughly 35 football fields. The Superdome, the building that is a Superdome, sits on 13 acres. That's about three Superdomes. It's tremendous. Columns uh, around Solomon's portico that made up Solomon's portico were 30 to 35 feet high. This is about 20 feet. So 10 or 15 feet higher than this building. And they would be large enough around their base for three grown men to hold hands and surround the base of the column. This was an immense, impressive, awe-inspiring structure. And it was intended to be. It was intended to represent the might, the majesty, the power of God. Inside the court of Gentiles, there was a wall that, that, that surrounded this other interior building. And if you go through that wall, you would enter the court of women where only Jewish women were allowed. In fact, on the outside of the wall, all around it was this inscription, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surrounded the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. A Gentile to go into the court of women would be death for them. Inside the court of women, there was another wall and another innermost court that would be only for circumcised Jewish men. And then, of course, you have the innermost portion of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, where the high priest would enter once a year to atone for the sins of the people. Now, we've already seen a few weeks ago when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain surrounding the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. God declaring to his people, you no longer have to come through this way to access me. Everyone has access now through Christ in his sacrifice. 
Jesus in chapter 11 is beginning to get that message across through this parable, through this cleansing. Jesus arrives at the temple on this day and he sees in the court of Gentiles this busy marketplace, this exchange of coinage, the money changers table. The temple tax had to be paid by all the pilgrims who were coming into the city and it had to be paid in a coin that was as close to the Old Testament shekel as possible. They had a coin like that from the people of Tyre. Most people didn't have that coinage and so they could basically exchange currencies, but there would be a four to six percent charge to exchange the currencies. And the the money for that fee would go into the pockets of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the chief priest, the Pharisees, the elders. They would also have the selling of animals to be offered for sacrifice, like the pigeons, and they would be overpriced because they were capitalizing on the necessity. People were traveling from far away, pilgrims coming to worship uh, God at Passover. They can't carry these animals and take care of these animals and feed these animals all the way that they're traveling. So they can purchase them there in the, in the marketplace, but you're going to pay a little bit more for that. And the, the overpriced, the, the markups would go into the pockets of the religious leaders. The problem with this was twofold. First, with the markup. A scheme for the religious leaders to become wealthy. The temple tax, the markup on the animals, the extra money being funneled to them who were known in their day for their wealth that they were accumulating. We offer you access to God and his power in your life, but first you have to invest in our ministry to make us wealthy and then you can get to God. The second problem, it was happening in a place that was supposed to give access to the Gentiles the nations, to come and encounter God. And according to some scholars, there was, this was a recent change in, in policy. This was not something that had gone on for years and years and years. On the Mount of Olives, there was a place to handle this necessary transaction. And, and it had to happen. It had to take advantage of the people, but they had to buy animals. They had to exchange currencies. But it all took place on the Mount of Olives. There's no record of this happening in the court of Gentiles before 30 A.D., In 30 A.D., this might have been only going on for a year, 30 A.D., Caiaphas makes a law, passes a new ordinance that allows for this to happen inside the temple, in the court of Gentiles. So this space that's supposed to be for the nations to come and see the worship of the Most High God, the one true God, is now littered with people who are stealing and robbing and capitalizing on their necessities to buy an exchange coin, to buy animals for sacrifice. And here comes Jesus to the temple, this place that was supposed to be where God's people met God and worshipped Him, where the nations would be drawn to the one true God. God's heart, even in the Old Testament, has always been not just for His people, but for the nations. And the religious leaders were building walls. So the nations, it was harder for them to come. Access was not as free. And making it harder while they're benefiting from it financially. Like, can you, um, can you just begin to feel like the rage building inside of you? Like, like what if you showed up one morning here at this building and, and we had, like, parking charges? It cost so much money to park. To come in the door, you have to pay another fee. To sit in a seat, you have to pay more money. The front seats are the cheapest. The back seats are the most expensive. You want, you want our, our bread and our juice? You have to pay for that. We'll give you a little bit better bread for more money. We'll give you real wine for more money. You want to you have a Bible? You've got to use our Bible. You can't just bring your Bible. And we'll, we'll sell you a Bible for $50. We'll give you a nice special on it. Oh, yeah, and all the money that you're spending goes in the pockets of the pastors for our wealth and our 
growth financially. Well, I'll just go to another church. There is no other church. This is it. In the temple, that was it. That's the only place they could go to access God. So this is the only place you can encounter the presence of God in the entire city of Monroe, and you have to do these things or you're not allowed. Like, you can just begin to see the rage building inside of you. Like, that's not right. That's, that's an injustice. It's wrong. You can see how Jesus was, was feeling about how this place that was a dwelling place for God, the Father, the, 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 the Son, the Spirit, was being prostituted for the financial well-being of these corrupt religious leaders while the nations were being pushed away. So you see Jesus' rage and wrath against them. Now, it's important to point out, Jesus' anger here, he's not flying off the handle, out of control. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. There's several clues that help us see this. First, if you go back to, to verse 11 of chapter 11, after Jesus comes into the city, the triumphal entry, it says in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Almost as if Jesus walked into the temple and says, okay, I got this. I'm going to take care of this later. And he goes back to Bethany. Not just out of control rage. I can't, I can't process what, what I'm feeling right now. I'm just going to unleash this anger on all these people. No, I know what's going on. I'll take care of it. Not to mention, when John records this, he records Jesus fashioning a whip of cords before he turns over the tables and drives out the money changers and the, and the crooks. Taking time to make a whip out of cords. Not like when we were growing up and your dad gets mad at you and he just whips his belt out, going to town now, you know, like Indiana Jones whip. Not like that. He's taking the time to mend together a whip of cords. Totally under control. Also, if this was some kind of market-disrupting outpouring of rage and venom, you would have expected it to draw the attention of the Roman soldiers, whose number one job, not just to assert the military might of Rome, whose number one job was to keep the peace. Like that's, that's the main thing they wanted to do. Anything that was disruptive, that looked like an uprising, they are squashing that instantly. And it didn't draw their attention. It's a 35-acre complex. So more than likely it happened in this one small area Totally unknown to the rest of the 35-acre complex. So this is not Jesus just out of control, not in control of his emotions. It is the settled disposition of God's wrath against sin, against the religious leadership, against corruption and greed, against the distraction that this was causing in a place where the nations were supposed to come and see how amazing the one true God is and how he is worshipped by his people and they can't. So here is God's judgment and condemnation. The fig tree is cursed and withering and dying and so now is this temple cult. These temple practices. They're not calling people to see God in all of his glory and love and radiance, but are pushing people away. The necessity for this brick and mortar structure, the necessity for the sacrifices and walls and divisions, it's all coming down Friday on the cross. The temple veil will be torn, and in about 40 years, this entire structure is coming down, literally. Never to be rebuilt to to this day. The fig tree, often in the Old Testament, would be used to represent Israel. 
Like Hosea 9.10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Happens throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29, Isaiah 34. Israel is compared to a fig tree and we see God's judgment on Israel and judgment on the fig tree. This is judgment against Israel that access to God would not no longer have to first go through the temple, the sacrifices, the religious rituals. Now it would come through Christ. You can't deny or dismiss the Jewish roots and foundation of Christianity, but you also can't deny or dismiss that when the substance came, that is Christ, the shadow was done away with. No longer would the temple and the sacrifices be necessary. He is the temple. He would be the sacrifice. He is the access now to God. Essentially, Jesus is condemning fruitless religion, just like the fruitless fig tree. The religion of the temple cult had become such an obstacle that people no longer had clear and free access to God, and it had to end. And we have to constantly assess ourselves as a local church to make sure we aren't intentionally or unintentionally raising walls and obstacles of religion or expectations that would cut people off from accessing the good news of Jesus Christ. Because we can do the same thing. Unintentionally at times. Our primary message is the good news of Jesus Christ. All other messages flow from that and are evaluated by that. At the end of the day, are we pointing people to the life, freedom, and joy, and hope, and salvation only available through Christ? Are we making it available to anyone and everyone? Are we making the gospel clear and understandable? Are we not adding anything to it so you have to trust and believe in Jesus but do all these other things also? Is it Jesus plus something else? Are we giving people as much access to the gospel as possible? And how we do Sunday mornings and how we live our lives and how we spread out into the city. One of the ways we can know how well we're doing it is in our diversity. If Christ and his gospel is the message we're proclaiming and the message that forms the foundation of our unity, we will and can be incredibly diverse. Because we will willingly and lovingly lay down lesser issues of division because of the unity we have in Christ. We can be a people with diverse ethnic, socioeconomic, ages, educational, political backgrounds, and preferences. We can look different and like different types of food and drink and ways to dress and music and sports teams and hobbies and ways to parent and educate your kids. We can be incredibly diverse because we have lessened the importance of all of these secondary issues and secondary distinctions. We have not allowed them to become a wall of division because we see our union in Christ as so strong and so powerful, a bond and a unity that we have that we can allow for incredible diversity in every area of life. Like we're not an affinity group where we're together because we happen to like the same stuff. But we're a church. We are together because of Christ, first and foremost. And we are as diverse as the cities and neighborhoods in which we live. Jesus came to do away with fruitless religion. He condemned it. 
And just as shocking as it was for him to do away with the necessity of the temple and the sacrificial system, which so characterized the people of God for at least 1,300 years, so it might be shocking to remember this. Jesus will do away with unfruitful churches. He will do away with unfruitful churches. Jesus promised to build his church. That's referring to the church universal. He's been doing it for 2,000 years and will do it until he returns. But that's not a promise guaranteed to every particular local church. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus, through the apostle John, is sending a letter to seven different churches. Here are the things you guys are doing that are good. Here are the issues I have with you that you need to repent of and change. And in almost all of them, there's this warning. Do this or I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your witness to the world. I will snuff you out. There's no promise that the Crossing Church will always be here if we get off track and just become a social club or religious organization. And we, we pray, God, kill us if we get so far off track of the gospel that we're just a social club and religious organization and we're just perpetuating ministries and programs and services and activity, but there's no life, there's no fruit, the gospel's not present, people aren't being changed and impacting the city and the nations. Kill us if that's where we ever get. We don't want to be a church. We have enough of those churches. We want to be a place where fruit of the Holy Spirit is being born and multiplied and spread. And the life of Christ is made evident. We see this fruitful relationship with God described. Pick up in verse 22. After the fig tree is cursed, Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Peter is shocked. Again, we see this firsthand eyewitness uh, evidence. Peter, Peter remembers this and says to him, Peter's telling all this to Mark. Mark's writing it down. And Jesus responds by saying, you shouldn't be shocked. This is what life looks like for those who have faith in God. They can pray prayers according to the will and purpose of God and see the power of God flowing in their life and they live a life of forgiveness. These aren't the only characteristics of what a fruitful life in Christ looks like. There are dozens of other passages that reveal what new life in Christ looks like, but these qualities are always present in a fruitful Christ life to some degree or another. Fruitless religion doesn't experience any of this, but a fruitful relationship with God is a life first and foremost rooted by faith in God. He says there in verse 22, have faith in God. And we should not just gloss over this statement. Because most people, especially where we live, say, yeah, I have faith in God. Sure. I believe. Check. What's next? 85% of people in America claim to have faith in God. Probably over 95% in the Bible Belt South. 100% of people you meet has faith in something or someone. Everyone has faith. Everyone believes in someone or something. Everyone's worshiping someone or something. 
Everyone's heart is captivated by something or someone. Everyone is committed to some life-absorbing system or way of life. Everyone is basing their justification, their right standing before God, or they don't care about God, their right standing in in, in the eyes of the world on something or someone. Maybe they have created their own religion based on what they care about most. Maybe they are adhering to some religious system that they've invented or has been given to them by their religious institution. If I go to church so much, if I read my Bible so much, if I give so much money, if I serve in leadership, if I'm a pastor, etc., if I'm a missionary, then I'm going to be okay with God or okay with other people. I'm a good enough person to be okay with God. I'm okay in this world. or I'm not, I'm not as bad as those really bad people, whoever those really bad people are for you or for the people that we encounter in everyday life. Everyone has some kind of faith system that makes them okay with themselves in the world. But Jesus says the person who is in a relationship with him, who bears fruit for him, is a person who has faith in God. Faith is in God. Not God plus anything. Not anything plus God. It's in God. Period. End of sentence. So what does that mean? Well, faith is more than just asserting facts or data. Faith is more than just affirming that something is true. Faith is believing something to such a degree that it becomes your way of life. It's a commitment of your life. Martin Luther, 500 years ago this year, sparked the Protestant Reformation. He said that faith begins with understanding that leads to conviction, which leads to commitment. Faith begins with understanding that leads to conviction, that leads to commitment. It would be more accurate to assess someone's faith, not just by what they say, but what are they committed to? What is their life about? What defines them? What am I giving my heart to? That's how you really know what somebody believes. Who or what is the object of my justification? What makes me right and okay in the eyes of God or in the eyes of the world? How much faith you have is not really that important according to the New Testament. Jesus worked and responded in the lives of people with varying degrees of faith. Just a mustard seed of faith is all that is required to move mountains according to Matthew 17. So it's not the amount of faith you have as much as the object, the direction, the focus of your faith. Who is it resting on? That's what matters. And Jesus makes it clear, have faith in God. It's even okay to have faith mingled with doubt, as we saw in, in Mark chapter 9. The man, after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, the man says, heal my son. Jesus says, if you believe, I will. Well, I believe, help my unbelief. That's really all of us if we're honest. Faith is not something that has to be present with no doubt. Faith is something that's present that overcomes doubt because the doubt is mingled with the faith. So this faith that Jesus describes, this prayer that Jesus describes here in verses 23 and 24, not doubting in your heart. It's not that the doubts aren't there. It's that the faith overcomes the doubts. The faith perseveres through the doubts. The faith is still focused on God, on Christ, even though the doubts are still lingering. A person whose faith is in God will live a life committed to God, flavored by God, influenced and shaped by the one true most high God more than anyone or anything else. And it's not just this mental acknowledgement or ability to spout all theological truths that mark their life. It shows up in how you live. It shows up in your actions. Faith without works is dead, James tells us in James chapter 2. It's faith without works is a dead, in fact, demonic faith, according to James 2. 
Like we've already seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, the people, the, the entities that have the greatest theological understanding and acknowledgement of who Jesus is are the demons. Like they get it more than anybody else, more than even his closest followers. The demons knew who Christ was, but they don't follow Christ. They don't obey Christ. They're not committed to Christ. So their faith is just demonic faith. It's understanding truth with no life resting on that faith, no life being transformed by that faith. Genuine faith in God is not being able to pass, or or, I would rather say, not just being able to pass a theological test. It's how are you living? Are you living out the reality of the theology that you profess to believe? That's faith. It's a heart that has been captured by God because of the truth of God that has been revealed to you that you have embraced. Genuine faith in God. We have an entire chapter of the book of Hebrews, it shows what genuine faith in God looks like. And it's a listing of names of people throughout the Old Testament, not just what they affirm, the intellectual facts that they understood because God revealed himself to them, but then they based their life on what they believed and it showed up in their actions. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samson, Barak, Samuel, and untold others who walked by faith and not by sight. They saw that the the spiritual realm was more real than the physical realm. That there was an entity called God that they could not see, but he was more real and more powerful than any person that they could see. And the realities of life that he came to give were more real and more lasting than any temporary thing that you see or experience or enjoy. If you've ever been in a youth group in church or, or in a college group, you've, you've done these things called trust falls. Can you get a volunteer? Just kidding. And you can do it. You can stand up on something high. You can fall into the arms of a whole bunch of people. Or you can just be two people, just two people with each other. So your willingness to fall back in the arms of the person who's supposed to catch you was, is a demonstration of the faith that you have and not only their willingness to catch you, but also their ability to catch you. You know, if it's a friend, you're like, are they going to prank me and just let me hit the ground? I have zero faith in Timothy to catch me on a trust fall. I would just crush him. He has no ability to catch me, even if he's very willing But if you really believe that this person is willing and able, you trust the integrity of this person, you trust the ability of this person to catch you, then you will totally let go of the center of your gravity and throw your weight back on them. Like you won't cheat and do that little half step. You won't do that. You'll just fling yourself back because you know that person. And not only are they willing to catch you, they can catch you. That's an illustration of faith. Jesus says, throw all of your weight on God. Throw all of your weight. Don't hold back anything. Just throw it all. Fling yourself on him. Because not only is he amazingly capable to catch everything that you are, he is overwhelmingly willing, lovingly, to embrace all that you are. He can bear it. He can handle it. All of the weight of your life now and your life eternally. In fact, it's, it's only in throwing all of your weight and faith on God and in God and his son Jesus that you truly find life. 
As long as your faith is in yourself, as long as you're trying to cheat, as long as you're trying to give him part of you and and not give him all of you, that you're going to continue to work, to work, to work, to create this good impression with God, this good impression in the eyes of others, to justify yourself. You're not giving all of yourself to him. But when you place all that you are on Christ, believing he's done everything, then you are truly free to live because your faith is in Christ and he's done everything to make you right with God. Everything. There's nothing else you need to do to make you right with God if you're, all your faith is in Christ. You rest yourself in him and you are free to go and give your life away for the good of others who don't yet know this freedom that you've found in placing all of your weight on Christ. There's two ways mentioned in this passage that this faith in God looks like. First, you pray believing God can accomplish all he desires by his power according to his will. Verse 23 and 24, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, you can flip on religious TV and find plenty of wealthy preachers profiting from telling people that what this verse means is if you believe enough, God will do whatever you want him to do for you, which means you should be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous because who doesn't want that? Nobody wants to suffer, be sick, or not be wealthy. And oh yeah, show how much you really believe this by sowing a seed of faith into my ministry so I can be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And so these guys are millionaires on the backs of mostly poor people who are naive or have been deceived into viewing faith in God as a way to get their best life now. Like God is a vending machine. I put the right amount of money in there and I get what I want. The only problem with that is the Bible. The totality of Scripture does not teach that we can force God to exert His power outside of His purposes. He is God. We are not. But I don't think that's the problem in this room. The more likely issue in this room is, do we really believe God can move mountains and act in powerful ways through our prayers? Sure we do. Okay, let's go around the room and do a quick inventory of how much we pray. And how passionately we pray. And how desperately we pray. And I'll start. I'll go first. Because it's pathetic. By our actions, do we demonstrate that we really believe this is true? Not that literal mountains can move. I mean, Jesus is speaking hyperbole here. If we had mountains going into the sea, this, this world would be a mess. But do we really believe God can do things that only God can do? That God can act in his power to accomplish his purposes and do things that only God can do. Like wither a fig tree. Like save people. Like help his people overcome sins in their life. Like what are the things in your life and the lives of those around you that you just don't see how it is ever going to change or get better? And there seems to be no hope. Do you pray believing that God can intervene and change hearts and change lives and bring salvation and help us overcome sin and say no to sin that maybe you've been enslaved by for most of your life? Like It seems impossible that this desire will never leave me. Well, either God can miraculously take it away or he can miraculously give you the grace sufficient every day to say no to that sin and say yes to Christ. Do you believe that? Do you pray believing that? Do you pray honestly, believing that God can work in that much power to accomplish his purposes in your life? 
What can God not do according to his will, according to his character, according to his attributes? He can do anything that's in line with his purposes. His purpose to conform you to the image of Christ, to, to sanctify you and make you more like Christ, which means less sin, more holiness and righteousness. So he can help you overcome fear, anxiety, shame, guilt, doubt, despair, s- sexual immorality, whatever the sins are that are enslaving you, that are keeping you from experiencing the fullness of Christ, God can and desires to come and help you overcome it. Do you pray believing that? Is your faith in God believing that? Are you clinging desperately to this reality? That's what faith can accomplish in our lives. Whatever our excuses are, busyness, distractions, pain and hurts in life that have left me struggling to believe, maybe theological struggles, like if God is sovereign, why pray? Whatever those struggles are, see the clear, simple call of Jesus this morning to have faith in God. Pray, believing God can come and act and do things that only God can do, can move mountains inside of your life in the lives of those around you, in the lives of our city and our nations. God can and will work powerfully in our lives through our lives to accomplish his purposes through prayer. It is a mystery how a sovereign God does that, why he would even choose to do that. It'd be a lot easier if he just did it without us. But he chooses to do it with us, working in accordance with our prayers to accomplish his purposes. Charles Spurgeon said this, the condition of the church may, very, may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a grace-ometer? And from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people? If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he is not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Don't sit here this morning beating yourself up over your lack of praying. Just start praying. Just start praying. Flowing from your faith in God, trust he will and can work powerfully to accomplish his purposes in and through your life, even to give you the desire and ability to pray, to be connected to him more consistently, more passionately, whether there's structured times of prayer or spontaneous times of prayer. That we as a corporate body would do this, be more passionate about this. Share with your DNA this week. Share with your missional community this week. Where are you at in the practice of praying? And, and where do you want to get? And how can they encourage you and hold you accountable? Also, see in this life flowing from faith in God, it is a life of forgiveness. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We not only can forgive, we have to forgive because we've been forgiven so much. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Our forgiveness of others flows from a Christ's forgiveness of us. We don't forgive because people have made themselves worthy of our forgiveness or have even repented or shown sorrow or remorse. That's not why we forgive people. Okay, they've shed enough tears, now I'll forgive them. They said, I'm sorry enough. Now I'll forgive them. No, we forgive. The basis of our forgiveness of others is strictly because we've been forgiven by God in Christ Jesus. 
As painful as the hurts are that people have intentionally or unintentionally inflicted on us, they can't come close to comparing the offense of our sins to God. And he forgives us not because we got good enough to earn it, but because Christ was good enough and gracious enough and loving and merciful enough to provide it. And so if God can and does forgive us so freely, we can and do forgive others so freely. This doesn't mean that we can forget the injuries we have endured. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but it's you making the choice not to hold the offense against them. So that when you see that person, you don't see the offense anymore. You see the person and you love them because they're your brother or sister in the faith or they are a potential brother or sister in the faith and created in the image of God. So you don't hold it against them because God in Christ holds nothing against you. Nothing. Matthew 18. Go read it this afternoon. Forgiveness is not a one and done act like you just should just happen one time and never have to do it again. It's continual, continually working this out, praying and asking God to help you not hold this against this person. Forgiveness does also mean there's reconciliation and, 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 and trust because sometimes the pain and hurt was so damaging there doesn't need to be reconciliation and trust. The abuse was so bad you don't need to be in this relationship with this person anymore. Sometimes they're dead. You can't be reconciled to them. But there can and will be forgiveness for those who have been forgiven. Sometimes forgiveness needs to look like like you letting go of the jealousy and envy that you feel about other people. And so you hold stuff against them, not because they've done anything. Because you look at their life and you're jealous and envious of their life. So you just hold that against them. They don't even know. So forgiveness needs to be you letting go of that thing that you see in their life. You're holding against them that they're not even aware of, but it's affecting your relationship. Does that ever happen in social media culture? I'm not saying it's easy. Like some in this room have injuries and hurts beyond what I could imagine, but have faith in God. He is able and willing to help you, praying to him, believing he can work powerfully, he can move mountains in your life to do something that only he can do. Like if this is really something in your life that you're struggling with, turn your eyes not to the struggle, but turn your eyes to see Jesus. See Jesus and his willing, loving sacrifice on the cross for your sins. See his abundant forgiveness for all of your sins. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and his forgiveness. Understand that to to willingly and knowingly withhold forgiveness is a sure sign that you have not been embraced by the forgiveness of God. Like to know this truth, to understand this truth, and to still make the choice, no. I will not forgive that person. You're in grave danger of missing out on the forgiveness of God. Grave danger. Forgiven people forgive people. It's just a fact. It's one of the surest signs that you know you are in Christ and Christ is in you. You may think, no way, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. In fact, all this Christian stuff seems impossible. It's too hard. What are you talking about? Who can possibly do all this stuff? Like, can't we just live life any way we want and just sprinkle enough of Jesus to be okay with God? Like, can't we just, Jesus can almost be like the hot sauce in our gumbo. The gumbo is the main course, but we just know that we have enough of Jesus in there to know that he's there, but I can really just do what I want to do. Can't we live that Christian life? 
The problem with that is that's not who Jesus is. You go home this afternoon, you have a lion in your house. You can't just go on as though life is normal. You got to deal with it. This is Jesus. You have to deal with him. You can't ignore him. You can't just push him off to the side. You have to deal with him. See this in the last section of Mark 11, beginning in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But we, shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now this really begins this open conflict with the religious leaders that would lead to them getting Judas to betray Jesus and eventually illegally arrest him, illegally try him, and then hand him over to the Romans to be crucified. But it begins with this question of authority. What gives you the right, Jesus, to do all these things you've been doing, like cleansing the temple? But you could go through his entire ministry because they've been buttonheads since chapter 2. What gives you the right to do all these things that you've been doing? Who do you think you are? Where does your power come from, your authority? Now, Jesus knows their minds, he knows their tricks, and so he doesn't answer their question, but gives them a question they can't answer because they don't really care about Jesus and his authority. They care about their reputation and authority in the sight of the people. They're always making decisions by sticking their finger in their air to see what the people think. We've got to make the best decisions so everybody still respects us. And the basis of Jesus' authority, according to Jesus, goes back to his baptism with John. Mark chapter 1, Jesus goes to John and is brought down into the water. When he comes out of the water, Mark 1, 10, 11, uh, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with whom you I am well pleased. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, empowering him for ministry, which, by the way, is the same Holy Spirit that indwells the people of God who are in Christ and Christ is in them to empower us for every single thing he calls us to do. Same Holy Spirit, same power. And then a voice tore through the heavens. You can imagine this. This is my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Jesus is the beloved son of God. His authority comes from that position and identity he has had for all of eternity. If these religious leaders could confess that and admit that, they could have faith in him and life in him, but they can't because they care more about the opinion of people than the opinion of the Son of God. And notice this. Jesus is done with them. He won't answer. He won't fool with them. See this warning this morning if you are here and not a Christian. You can reach a point where Jesus is done with you. You've rejected and rejected and turned and refused his love and grace so much, you can get to a place where that is it. Now, no one, not even you know when that time and place is reached. Only God knows. So we treat everyone as still having this opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus until their final breath. 
Only, only God knows when that threshold has been crossed, but it's real, and we see this in the Scriptures as a warning to heed the call of God to salvation today. Today is the day of salvation. This is not something you put off. You don't play around with a holy God who has the power to send you eternally separated from him or to save you in love and grace and mercy. You don't play around with this. Don't presume the grace of God will always act as it is acting right now working in your heart. One of the most dire sins in the scriptures is presuming on the grace of God. Well, God's given me a chance today. He'll always give me a chance. No, he won't. There could come a day where that is it. If you hear the Spirit of God calling and working in you this morning, heed the work of the Spirit of God and believe and repent in Christ. Whether it's the first time or the 10,000th time, believe in Christ. Trust Christ for your life now and your life eternally. See this entire passage now working together. Jesus has come to crush fruitless religion so that through him and his work, his perfect life and sacrificial death and resurrection, we can have fruitful life in him. This happens through faith in God, placing the full weight of our life now and life eternally on Christ, and he can bear that weight and give us life. And two of the evidences that you know you've done this is how you pray boldly for God to work in you and through you to accomplish his purposes through his power and that you are a person who forgives and holds no offense against anyone. How is this possible? How can Christ, this one man, do all of this? Because he is the one and only son of God. There has never been anyone and never will be anyone like him. He alone came out of the baptismal waters and had a voice from heaven declare, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He alone lived a perfect sinless life. He alone was willing and lovingly crucified as a criminal in our place. He also, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He alone was buried and rose from the dead never to die again. He alone ascended into heaven and at the right hand of the Father interceding for us right now, declaring to the Father in the face of the accuser, they are mine. All the time. And through faith in Christ, you become a beloved son and daughter of your Father in heaven forever. I plead with you. Hear this. Believe this. Put your faith in God. Put all the weight of your life on Christ. He can bear it. He can give you life. We want to give you space to do that, we're going to give you opportunity to do that. So we're going to sing a song in a few minutes. And if you want to talk with someone, there'll be a couple of us by that back door. We'll, we'll go somewhere in the back, find space to talk, talk you through the gospel. Don't leave here today without dealing with this. Is your faith in Christ? It's transforming your life continually. Father, we're grateful that you came to give us life through your life, death, and resurrection so that you would save a people like us and here in Monroe and a people among all, all peoples in the nations, even in places like Iran. Believers are coming alive in Christ. Places like Germany among Turkish people, they're coming alive in Christ. In Indonesia, in China, they're coming alive in Christ. You are calling a people to yourself. Your power has no limits to accomplish your purposes. 
And for us here, that means everything. We thank you that you can change us. You can give us life this morning. So come, Lord Jesus, and do that. Whether it's the first time of salvation or once again we turn from our sin and believe in Jesus. And the joy of our salvation is restored. Come, Lord Jesus, and do this. For your glory alone, we pray. Amen.